Greetings, brethren. I hope you're enjoying the Feast of Tabernacles, wherever you may be keeping it and observing it. If you're like me, you've been planning and anticipating towards the feast for several months now. And finally, for us as we gather around the world, the the eight-day reality of the feast is here. And yet, you know, the Feast of Tabernacles is just a rehearsal, an annual rehearsal of a much greater reality that God is anticipating with delight. And uh, he has given us this to, to help us to look forward to the time when the reality comes, uh, comes about, and that is the kingdom of God under Jesus Christ. The actual events pictured by the four holy days of this fall festival season, those actual events picture the summation of God's purpose and plan for mankind, which he's been working on for maybe millions of years. Can you imagine God's joy if we're having an enjoyable time at the feast, if we're, if we're uh, relishing it? Can you imagine God's joy as he meets with us and he anticipates the fulfillment of his plan of salvation for mankind? He is able to look forward to it in detail. You know, we see through it last darkly. We don't know much about what lies ahead, but he sees it all. He knows what he's planning and what he is going to bring about. Can you imagine his joy as he fellowships and meets with us at this time? You know, you and I have been called for a great purpose. It's God's purpose. It's not ours, it's God's purpose. And he can see a potential in us. Each day, most of us will pray the plan of the Lord's Prayer. And there are two lines in that Lord's Prayer. You know, thy kingdom come Thy will be done. We should pray that thought with meaning, with true meaning. We should anticipate it. We should be, that should be the center point of our life. To anticipate God's kingdom and to do God's will here on earth as it is done in heaven. It's easy, isn't it, to supplant God's will with our own will. Our mind, our thoughts, our actions, can very easily turn to our will or others' will and divert from God's will. You know, Jesus Christ, he said in in John 4 and verse 34, something that you will know, you needn't turn there necessarily. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Other translations phrase it differently and uh, perhaps help us to understand what he is saying a little bit more. One translation says, my meat, my food, is to be obedient to him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's what Christ worked towards. His food, his, the thing that sustained him, that saw him through every day of his life, his sustenance was being involved in God's work. As we'll see, as we proceed through the sermon, You know, a major purpose for us is to rule in God's kingdom with Jesus Christ. That's why for us to pray, thy kingdom come, is so important. And we must put the meaning and heart into it. Please turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians and chapter 1. 1 Corinthians and chapter 1 and verse 26. This is a... Scripture that we're really familiar with, we could recite it, we know what it says. 
It says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. And I just want to focus on the first phrase, For you see your calling. That's not referring to just seeing it with the vision, seeing it with the eyes. It's talking about perceiving it, understanding it, taking heed of our calling. You know, we are to take heed and we are to to consider the calling that we have been given. And it's interesting that Paul, at the beginning of this letter that he knew would be a corrective letter for the Corinthian church, he started off with emphasizing that they had a precious and high calling of God and he wanted them to understand it. If they could understand it and grasp it and perceive it, see it clearly in their mind's eye, then they could accept the correction that he was going to offer them and act upon it and be pulled back from the brink of great sin that that church was potentially involved in. And they did. And uh, he he later on thanks them and and praises them for the way they reacted towards his correction. But he emphasised first of all that I had to see their calling. The uh, the if you like a title for my sermon today, it's fulfilling our kingdom calling. I want to look at why we have been called and what we can do to fulfil the future role that we have in God's kingdom. We are called, we have been chosen. It's interesting, over in, in uh, Revelation chapter 17, Revelation chapter 17, there is a scripture that talks about us. Revelation 17 and verse 14, For these will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him, and we pray that that will be us, that we will be with them at that stage, that they are those who are called and chosen and faithful. So those three elements have to be there for us. We, are being, we have been called and we're now under judgment. The judgment starts with the, the church of God and God is judging us right now. It begins at the house of God. We refer to that. Uh, we can we can inspect ourselves and evaluate ourselves. That parable of Christ, the sower and the seed. You know, the longer I am a pastor, the more I understand the truth of that. It is so profound in those very few verses. So profound what Christ puts in them that we have to be the right type of ground to produce the fruit that God can use. What type of ground are we? Are we quitters like those uh, who are rendered as stony ground? Do we allow the world to choke out any fruit that we might have as those who who produce, produce growth but are then choked by the world? Are we still immersed in the world? Or are we fertile, fruitful ground producing fruit? for God and for his kingdom. If you turn back to John chapter 6, another very familiar scripture, 
but one that contains profound meaning for us. John 6 and 44, and it's similar, similar thoughts are, are, um, repeated in, um, in verse, in verse 65, but John 6, 44, which says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So Christ immediately tells us with that that coming to him is the result of a personal invitation by his Father. Now how profound is that privilege that we are here, we've been called to Jesus Christ as a result of God's own action, his personal action and invitation to us. Do we understand that? Some of us do treat it very lightly, very lightly, I should say. But we have been called by the Father, and, and with that calling, our mind is opening up to the, the, the truth about Christ and about the kingdom of God and the gospel, the full gospel. Interestingly, leading on from that, Christ concludes that verse with, I will raise him up at the last day. And that's what Christ is looking forward to. That's what the God, the Father, is looking forward to. And uh, in fact, we're told elsewhere, the whole creation cries out and yearns for the revealing of the sons of God. Turn over, if you would, with me to Hebrews chapter 3. We're talking about the calling and the purpose of God and what he intends for us. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. This is a calling that commenced, that was initiated in heaven. Not that we're going to be called to heaven, but it initiated in heaven with our heavenly Father. And we are holy brethren. That means we're separated. We're separated from others who aren't called by virtue of God's call. Something that we cannot manufacture for ourselves, something that we're utterly dependent upon God to provide us with, his calling. And we've heard that heavenly calling. And he says, consider, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider, which means, you know, fix our attention upon Jesus Christ, the high priest of our confession, the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. We are to focus upon him. It's a privilege to be called to be a close intimate of God and of his son, Jesus Christ. But sometimes we don't reflect upon it and consider it as highly as we should. The point of God's calling is found down in verse 6. Well, I'll read, I'll read on down from up verse 2. Who was faithful. Jesus Christ was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was also faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone but he who built all things is God. 
Verse 6, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are. If we hold fast, note that word if, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So we've got to consider this and we've, it's got to result in confidence and rejoicing in that hope. And we've got to hold that fast firm into the end. Please turn, if you would, <clears throat> over a very few pages to Revelation <coughs> and chapter 1. Revelation <coughs> chapter 1 and verses 4 to 6. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Yes, he is a king. To him who loved us and washed us clean and washed us, I should say, from our sins. How? In his own blood. And has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So we, it talks there, there's a, there's, a, there's a verse, isn't there, and I think it's Romans 4.17 that says, God speaks about things that are as not, as though they are. And this is what's, what's happening here. He says, we are, he has loved us and made us kings and priests to his God. It's a certain that that's what will be if we do our part at this particular time. He talks about a royal a, a house, the house of Christ. It's talking about a royal house. Most dynasties of kings are known by a house. The present Queen of England is of the House of Windsor. And there's been the Plantagenet and the Hanoverians and the Stuarts in the past who have been different houses of the, the royal British throne. Well, God is forming a house of kings and this is the house of God himself. There are kings within it and also priests. And then it concludes with a, uh, a doxology, a, a, a passage of praise. To him be the glory <coughs> and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This opportunity to be gods, to be kings and priests was offered to Israel. In Exodus in chapter 19, I'll read to you what God offered Israel. Exodus chapter 19 and verse 4. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings, <coughs> excuse me, and brought you to myself. So in other words, in, in, in another case in which it's emphasized that God brings us to himself. We don't seek and find out God and find him. He brings us. He seeks us out and brings us to himself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And he is the God who owns the earth and the riches of it. And one of the riches of it are those people he has called out 
and he's going to make his special treasure. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. So there's the kingdom, there's the regal aspect to it that they were offered, and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Now, sadly, Israel did not treasure that, did not treasure the great opportunity that they were given. And they uh, they spurned it, in fact. They covenanted with God to behave in a certain way, and we can read that about that covenant in, in chapter 24. But they failed to follow through on what they had promised to do. And the church is now being given this opportunity, this potential. The church is a holy nation. And we ourselves, individually, not as a nation, not as a group, not in block, but as individually we have covenanted with God through baptism. We have accepted his calling. We have repented and we have covenanted covenanted with God to obey him and serve him and follow him to the greatest extent that we're capable of. And our part, our reward, will be a part in his holy kingdom which will be ushered in over the whole world at the time of Christ's return. If you turn please to 1 Peter and chapter 2. And verse 4, coming to him, yes, we do come to Jesus Christ, as to a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God. Christ himself was chosen by God. And he was chosen after he proved himself. He was willing to follow through on the commitment he made with his father. He followed it through to death. And at the resurrection, he was chosen. He proved himself. And we have to do the same. Chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are offering a living sacrifice of our whole life that continues until the day of our death or the resurrection, whichever comes first. But we are offering God on a daily basis the sacrifices and they've got to be worthy of God. Our life is a living sacrifice and it's lived through Jesus Christ. We cannot live the type of life that we need to live by ourselves. Uh, verse 9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, kings and priests, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we're not proclaiming. We're not proclaiming anything about ourselves, but we're proclaiming God's praises, Christ's praises. Actually, that word proclaim, we normally think of it in terms of uh, speaking, you know, shouting like a, a, um, a, a herald would, would shout out and proclaim, proclaim news in a nation. Uh, a more correct understanding of it is show forth. We show forth the praises of God. How? By example. We show forth praises of God by example.
who may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now obtained mercy, have obtained mercy. You know, Peter also writes, you know, he says, everything that is needed for salvation, God has provided us with. And if you think about the steps of our salvation all along the way, God is providing them to us. Nothing really comes from us. He provided the sacrifice for us. He is the author of repentance. Repentance is a gift from God, as we'll see. We have to, obviously, we do have to follow through on that repentance. And we have to be willing to, to produce effort as we live our Christian life. But really, what is necessary does come from God. We are actually called uh, kings and priests and judges in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 2. We know that at the return of Christ, when God's kingdom is established, that David will be the king over the great nation of Israel. And uh, I won't turn there, but Ezekiel 37, you'll be familiar with that, that David will be king over them. But do turn, please, to Matthew chapter 19. So we've got to understand what God is calling us to and how we can, anticipating that wonderful time, prepare and work towards it now. But it should be, you know, thy kingdom come should be in the forefront of our mind and thy will be done should be right there with it. Matthew 19 and verse 28. Assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel and everyone who has left homes houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. That's what's offered to us. That's what's promised to us. You know, we are going to be colleagues of the apostles as they rule. We're going to be their colleagues. We don't want to, I'm not going to speculate upon government structure or anything like that, but obviously Christ is the king. And as we'll see, we're going to be in intimate relationship with Christ and the Father and the Apostles and of course the many saints who've gone before us. Proverbs chapter 29. Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 18. And this is written from the point of view of a, of a national level uh, where there is no revelation. The people cast off restraint or, or some in the King James Version says where there is no vision, the people perish, but the people cast off restraint. But happy is he who keeps the law. But let's think of this at a personal level. You know, you and I, 
whenever we journey somewhere, we have in mind the destination. And if we don't have a destination in mind, then we're just wandering. We're going nowhere. If you don't know where you're going, you won't arrive anywhere important. But when we started the Christian walk, we need to have that revelation is what it's termed here. Um, a goal, a potential, a desirable future should be in the forefront of our mind. That should be motivating us, keeping us on track, urging us forward. Otherwise, there is the potential for us to cast off restraint. As it says there, cast off restraint, those things that keep us on track, that stop us from sinning, those things that direct our lives, we will just let slip if we lose sight of the goal that lies ahead of us, the goal to which we're working towards, the goal that God actually individually and personally called us towards. If we have no vision, no aim, then we'll be pursuing a dead end and there will be no eternal potential available to us if that's the case. So we do need that vision. We do need to understand what this Feast of Tabernacles represents. We do need to understand that that's our future if we will follow through on it. That's what God calls us to. That's what he's given. He gave his son, Jesus Christ, so that we could share that future with him. And that's what we want to be motivated by. Christ's motivation is to do the will of God perfectly to the greatest extent he is able to. And, and when he was on earth, he was able to. And we must share that motivation. With Christ is living in us. And the way he lived when he said that his will, his, his, his meat is to do his father's will, the same Jesus Christ with those same attitudes is available to us through the Holy Spirit to come and live within us. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 26. Revelation 2, 26. He who overcomes... And keeps my works until the end. So we cannot quit. We cannot cast off restraint. We've got to keep God's works until the end. He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him, to that man, to that woman, I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel as I also have received from my Father. We are going to be given authority over rebellious nations. It's a blessed, glorious future that we have been given. I remember uh, talking to a young man many years ago, and uh, he was the only one of his nationality, only, only male within the church of his nationality, and um, he was a little bit puzzled as to how he could, you know, what he would rule over in, in, in the kingdom of God. And I said, 
how many people who are God beings with the power of God, how many people like that is it going to take to rule that nation of a few thousand people? I said, you could be possibly the only one. Now, as it's turned out, others from his nation have also been called now, which is, which is wonderful. But, you know, seriously, for Jesus Christ himself to rule a nation, that's all it takes. And if we are servants of his and have his authority and power, that's all it would take. But thankfully, God seems to have called many of our compatriots and they're going to help us and rule with us and we're going to coexist and they're going to be colleagues in God's kingdom. So we are promised rulership in the kingdom. I'd like to turn to Revelation, just over the next page, in fact, in my Bible, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 11. Another aspect of the future that has been offered to us, Revelation 3 verse 11 Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. That's the real aspect of it. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. You know, the fact that we're told that we are going to be a pillar in the temple of of my God and then John, actually Christ, Christ is speaking at this time, he then refers to the new Jerusalem. And if you read in Revelation 21 about the new Jerusalem, it says there is no temple there because the, the, the Christ and the Father are its temple and here we are promised a role as pillars in the temple of God so what does that indicate for us in an intimate relationship with God and his son Jesus Christ what does that portend it's a wonderful future that we have been promised a glorious regal future that we've been promised a priestly future and we don't want to let that slip. As we're told, don't, don't drop your crown. Don't let that slip because there'll be someone else that God will call. You can come and pick it up and they will receive the future that God was offering to you and to me. So we must not let that slip. Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, and I'll just read some verses from it. I won't read the whole, para, uh, the whole parable, but in verse 11, Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So their focus, their thoughts were on the kingdom of God, but a vastly different kingdom than what Christ was focusing on. They were thinking of a kingdom that would throw out the Romans and would rule their land. But then he said, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return, and Christ is that nobleman. 
And we'll read down, we'll just pick out some verses. He said to them in verse 13, He said, He called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten miners, and said to them, Do business until I come. So they were called to work and to trade, to make an effort until Christ returned. And verse 15, And so it was when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants, to whom he had given the money, to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. So they were to trade, they were to work. You know, trading can be a hard business life. You know, making deals, building up the wealth by buying and selling and trading. It can be very hard work or by producing something and selling it. doesn't have to be necessarily um, buying and flicking on goods at a higher price, but producing Christ was a trader. He purchased wood and he turned it into wooden articles or dwellings and he sold those and that's how he made his living for a good 10 years of his life. Initially probably with his father but he was a trader. He knew how, what it was like to work hard with the hands and, uh, and he also observed other traders working. But this is not Christ is calling us to for the time that we are here serving him until he returns is not sitting around just enjoying the knowledge we have no it's getting out there and trading working in a practical day by day life daily life in the spheres of daily life rubbing shoulders with other people and working together with them in different ways. Developing spirit, we're developing character skills that can be employed in his kingdom. We've got to be faithful for the boss. We've got to be diligent, hardworking and honest in the here and now. We're not to goof off. We need to consider, do we apply our time? The time that we have, do we redeem the time with work? with effort what are we like in relationships are we giving or are we grasping what type of relationship do we have with people if we're parents in the family realm how do we rule Paul said that if a man does not know how to rule his own family how can he rule the church of God he said that considering men for ordination How can he rule the church of God? Well, how much more if we're not ruling those things that are under our authority in this life? And, of course, the greatest thing that is under our authority is our own life. If we're not ruling it well, what inclination will there be for God to give us regal authority in his kingdom? It does require hard effort, and we have to apply that effort. We can't coast into the kingdom of God. Not like a roller coaster where God drags us up an incline and over the top we go and we coast the rest of the way. No, it's it's hard work all the way through our life. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 12, there is a fascinating scripture here <coughs> which just says that in Matthew 11:12, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence 
and the violent take it by force. It seems to be saying that we have to be violent people and we have to grab it and, and be grasping. I talked about whether we are grasping or giving. It seems that we have to be grasping. Well, that's not what it's referring to. And the Church of God has always taught that it's, it's it, Christ is saying we've got to apply ourselves diligently to pursue the kingdom of God. I found a, a commentary that, that put it. It's not totally accurate. Uh, there's a little bit of theology that we would understand. There's a little bit of stray, but I think he phrases it very well, this, this commentator, explaining that verse. And I think it gives a fuller picture, fuller than I've given to you, of what has been Christ is referring to. He says, The kingdom of God suffers violence. The tax gatherers and the heathens, whom the scribes and Pharisees think have no right to the kingdom of the Messiah, they were filled with holy zeal and earnestness, the tax gatherers and the heathens, and they seized at once on the proffered mercy of the gospel and, and so take the kingdom as by force from those learned doctors who claim for themselves the chiefest places in that kingdom. So they, they claimed by right of, we're, we're a doctor, I'm a scribe, I'm a Pharisee, I have a right. Well, the tax gatherers and the heathen claimed that right by zeal. Christ himself said, the tax gatherers and the harlots go before you into the kingdom of God. He that will take, get possession of the kingdom of righteousness, peace and spiritual joy must be in earnest, must be committed and sincere. All hell will oppose him at every step he takes. If a man be not absolutely determined to give up his sins and his evil companions and have his soul saved at all hazards and at every expense, he will surely perish everlastingly. This requires a violent earnestness. I think he phrases it quite nicely, and he, but he gets across the idea for us. Now, I'll just, just read to you, because he talks there and, and about the, the scribes and the Pharisees. It's interesting. In Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 7, I should say, and verse 28, actually verse 29, it says, And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Remember John said to these people when they went out to be baptized, he said, produce fruits which show that you're repentant. They didn't. They didn't have such fruit. They weren't baptized by him. And sadly, they will not advance into the kingdom of heaven, into the kingdom of God at the immediate return of Jesus Christ. Their time will have to come later. You know, there's a lot for you and me to do to prepare for Christ's sudden return. And it will come suddenly. We're told that it will come upon us unexpectedly. You know, Christ died at age 33 or thereabouts and he had finished the work that his father gave him to do. He said, it is finished. How long had he been working on that particular on that particular work? We could say as short as three and a half years, but more than that, as he grew up 
and, and uh, through his manhood. But at the very most, at the very most he had 33 years and he finished the work, the greatest work that any human has ever had. He did it. And I think it's, it's been 40 years since I came into God's church. What have I done with 40 years since my calling? It's sobering when we think about it. You might apply it to yourself. What have you done since you were called, however long that was? Is there much that you've left undone? I know for me there is. There is much that I need to turn myself to with, as Christ said, violence, zeal and earnestness. If I come, can come anywhere near to doing what God called me to do and the potential that God saw in me and the potential that God saw in you because he saw that potential, have we lived up to it? What can we do to be better prepared so that at the return of Christ, as he ushers us into his kingdom as kings and priests, he will be able to say, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. There's just four points that I'd like to give you that we need to apply ourselves to. And the first point is that we are to educate ourselves in godly knowledge. We are to teach this book. This is our textbook. This is the book, the law book of the coming kingdom of God that we're going to have a privilege to rule in. This is the book of... Look, you go to a lawyer's office and there's shelves of laws, of human man-made laws. This is the one book with which we'll govern, Christ will govern the coming kingdom of God. In this book are the answers to all human problems of a spiritual nature. The answer is here in, in counselling. There is an answer found in this book to every counselling issue and problem. Turn to, as I say, we're gonna, we, we need to develop and increase our understanding of godly knowledge. Turn to 2 Timothy. Second Timothy and chapter two. And verse fifteen. Now who are using the King James Bible? That would fall perfectly for me. I'd be able to say, see it says here study to present yourself approved. Well it doesn't stay study it says in the, the the new king james be diligent to present yourself approved to god and that is a better translation because it's not talking about study in the sense of a student sitting down and studying we are to present ourselves to god for his approval what does the word mean here um if I was to say to you and use the phrase, well, he offered me a studied insult. You know what I mean? It was an intended insult. It wasn't just a slip of the tongue. The man intended to uh, insult me 
and he offered me a studied insult. That's what it's referring to here. That's what this word means. We are to be diligent, apply effort to present ourselves approved to God. So we're not seeking the approval of the world around us. We're not seeking the approval of our friends and neighbours and relatives, although we do hope that our way of life has their approval if we diligently follow God's way. We want their approval, but we're not going to go to seek it. We're not going to compromise what we know to be right in order to gain their approval. We are to present ourselves approved by God, approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. A worker, you know, as I said, Christ was a worker. He was a woodworker. And you can imagine a, a man in a factory. He's working with tools, with his hand tools, and he's producing furniture, other wooden objects. And every so often the foreman or the supervisor or the boss may come by to look at the effort of his work. And he doesn't want to be ashamed of it. He wants to know that he's produced work that the factory can sell, that the boss will be pleased with. So it is with us. We have to come to understand this book so that we need not be ashamed of being caught unfamiliar with it. We want to be able to handle God's word skillfully. A worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, handling it properly, understanding how different subtleties apply, not grabbing a verse from here and applying it to that situation when it has really nothing to do with that situation, but being able to apply scriptures in the correct situations, give understanding to people, accurately deliver truth. We have to study or diligently apply ourselves to be able to do that. And it takes time. It takes time. It takes Bible study, daily Bible study. We should be doing that. We need to be avoiding the empty chatter of this world because it has no value in it in the main at all. So we talk about Facebook. You know, so many words of no value. Tweets, so many tweets that have absolutely no value. Billions of words each day are produced and they are without value. We need to avoid that. We need to be able to come, become familiar with God's word. We need to live it first of all. You've heard it said that what you're saying I can't hear what you're saying because the way you're acting is drowning it out. You know, our actions are the vital things that show what we're made of, what we're living by, what values we have, our actions. We need to be able to teach it. We need to be able to give a a ready answer to questions that we're asked. We should study this book every day. Not a day should go by in which we don't pick up and read with intent, with consideration, at least a passage of the Bible. We should strive to watch the telecast where I'm living at the moment. We can't see the telecast. There is none, but I can, I can go online and I can watch it. We should strive to do that. We should study articles in the Tomorrow's World magazine and the Living Church News. <coughs> 
I've heard, I've, I think myself and I've heard several other ministers say that the church produces sufficient material that we cannot do it justice in studying it the way we want to. There is so much material from the letters of Mr. Uh, Mr. Meredith, the commentaries, the other uh, things that you can subscribe to from the, from the websites. There is so much good material being produced that none of us need ever think, well, what can I study today? There's plenty for us to study. You know, thoroughly study Mr. Meredith's monthly co-worker letters. With a surety, every co-worker letter will give you a whole day of prayer notes as you lay it out there and you read it and you pray about the different points that he's making. You could strive to take a living university paper. So there's much that we can do to improve our understanding and our ability to use this book, not only as a tool that we can use, but as the guide to our life and in the future, a guide to our instruction that we'll be giving the world in the kingdom of God. (coughs) Point number two, not only do we have to have the knowledge, but we have to strive to live the Christian life now. Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. I alluded to this before. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? You know, God leads us to repentance. Repentance is not something that we can work up within ourselves we want that godly sorrow that leads to eternal life Judas Iscariot says he repented but it was a worldly sorrow a worldly repentance and it led to his death because he went out and hung himself whereas the apostle Paul was struck down by God on the Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and he repented immediately and said what do you want me to do And he never deviated from that for the rest of his life. That was a deep, godly repentance. Still reading in Romans chapter 2, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, a heart without repentance, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And he's writing to church members at this point who will render to each one according to his deeds. And then there's a beautiful passage here. He will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life will be given to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. So if we patiently continue to do good, and we seek, we yearn for glory and honor and immortality, we will be given eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, then they will receive indignation 
and wrath, tribulation and anguish, on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. So it's the person who does evil will receive these rewards. But glory, honour and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You know, some people are self-important and they, they value their longevity in the church, their longevity. I've been a member for 50 years. I was baptised in 1969 and they value that and it's a very important thing to them. I've, you know, I stayed faithful to the truth, etc. But what Christ and, and through, through Paul here is saying is that what is important, what is really important is what we are doing day by day. Not how many past years we've had in the church, not how much tithe money we're able to pay and contribute, not how eloquent our prayers may be at opening or closing prayers, but what we're doing day by day is what is important and will gain us if we're faithful, glory, honour and peace. You know, some people are in the church, sorry, are attenders at church, but they have never been baptised for some years even. They are unwittingly despising God's goodness because it says God leads to repentance and repentance leads to baptism, of course. A person who's attending services for some years with never getting baptised, with never making that commitment to commit his life to God. He is despising God's goodness. And that's a sad thing to do. You know, we have to, as it says up in verse 7, if I put it into my own words, you know, we have to demand, to demand from ourselves righteous living. That's a demand we need to put upon ourselves that righteous living, and then God will give us glory and honour and immortality as the kingdom of God. These days, pictured by the Feast of Tabernacles, are ushered in. We must not be among those who are self-seeking and contentious, striving, self-promoting, disloyal to the truth, and people who respect wrong and evil and some people do respect evil behaviour and the wrong way of life well which group are we in which group are we in turn over to Philippians chapter 1 you know there is no excuse we can't say that God will will drop us or forget us or doesn't help us there's a fascinating scripture here in first Philippians oh, sorry in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 where Paul writes that he is confident of this very thing, that he, that's God, who has begun a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. God will complete that good work. And incidentally, and interestingly, when it talks there about begun a good work and complete it, it's using specialized technical Greek words that refer to the beginning and the ending of a sacrificial ceremony. So it's referring to 
the pagan sacrifices. Paul is using those words, but you know, with accompanying a sacrifice, there was a ceremony and there was a beginning and it was given a technical name and there was an end and it was given a technical name. Those are the words that Paul uses here. It's like when we have some ceremonies, uh, we might have a say take a church service in most churches of this world. There'll be a a convocation or a greeting given to everyone. And at the end, it'll conclude with a, a, what's known as a doxology or a benediction at the end of the service. Well, a lot of, a lot of things that we do as humans have that beginning and the end at a wedding. A grand music is played as the bride comes down the aisle. That's the beginning of the service. And as the bridal party, the, the wedding party depart, more music is paid. And certain things are expected from the audience while that's happening, standing or sitting or doing other things. What Paul is saying here is that God has begun a good work in you and will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. In the, in the, in the theme of sacrifice, and our whole life is a living sacrifice. Christ began that ceremony of our living sacrifice when he called us, when we accepted and were ushered into his church through baptism and the receipt of the Holy Spirit. That was the beginning. And he'll see it right through until either the resurrection or our death. So that one verse contains much. You know, we can, we can never blame God. He will see it through with us in assistance to us. We are to lay down our lives day by day. <coughs> our time, our effort and our resources are our sacrifice. We are to, in a sacrificial way, serve our brothers, serve the world, serve God and his church. The third thing that we can do is to be aware of the family relationship that God has called us to. Be aware of that family relationship and build ties, family ties with God, with Jesus Christ and with each other. Ephesians chapter 2. Not verse 19. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The extended family of God. We are members of that extended family. In verse, chapter 3 verse 15 it talks about from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. God, it's the God family. We have a father, we have a brother. The church is our mother. For most of this world, they, they are of their father, the devil. But we are of the creator God in heaven. Relish and enjoy and respect that family relationship that we have with God and Jesus Christ and each other. Romans chapter 8, verse 14 to 17. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Verse 16. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. 
So that is the future that's being held out for us. We haven't inherited it yet. We have an inheritance waiting for us. But we are actually heirs for a glorious future. Verse 29 of that same chapter. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So Jesus Christ is our big brother, our older brother, and we have to imitate him. We want to conform to his. We want to have that family relationship. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen my father. And we also want to have that family not family relationship, that family identity, the familiarity. Parents like to see their children looking like them. And that's what we need to have, and that's what God wants more so than human parents. He wants us to spiritually resemble, have that family resemblance for him and his son. Sometimes people come to church and they want to check us out. I saw a letter today in which someone wanted, they were doing a, a religious studies course uh, at the local university and they wanted to come along and they wanted to bring some friends and they wanted to check us out to see how we do things on the Sabbath. And often we have people who phone up and they want to check us out. I, I, I don't quote this to them. I don't quote this to them, but I, I think of it. In Hebrews Chapter 2 and verse 10. Hebrews chapter 2, 10 and 11. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. And this is the bit that I, I want to quote to people who ask that they come to church to, to check us out. It says, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Christ is not ashamed to call us his brethren. And I think to a stranger who wants to check us out, who are you to come along to God's people whom he considers brethren and check them out to see if they're acceptable for you? No, they're acceptable to Christ. And he's not ashamed to call them brethren. Yes, there is a family relationship with God, the Father, with Jesus Christ, our elder brother, and with each other as brothers of Christ. And we need to nurture and care for that. You know, look at look at those in the congregation with you and realize that they are similarly brothers and sisters of Christ. And they should be and they must be our brothers also. The fourth point, the fourth thing we can do is to strive to develop holy, righteous character. Just choose right over wrong every time. You know, every decision, can you imagine it? Christ is a human being. Every decision that he made for 33 years, he chose the right one. That's what we need to strive to do. Often, we weak human beings have a choice and we know what is the right one. But we, being weak, choose the wrong one. Sometimes without much thought, we also 
tend towards the wrong one. We want over time to become more and more Christ-like with him living in us. Philippians 2, verse 5, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, that mind that put Christ first and just yearned for and lived and breathed doing his work and finishing the work. That mind should be in us, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal of God, but made himself of no reputation. Things that pertain to God he gave up, like eternal life. And he died. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men. He was as God, as, as the word with his Father in heaven. He was above all the grubby things of earth. You know, the dusty, menial things that happened in the land of Palestine. He was above them. He didn't have to participate in them, but he was willing to come down and make himself a bondservant and wash the dirty feet of his disciples and, uh, you know, lay his hands upon the lepers and heal them. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, it says in Philippians 2 and uh, verse 6. Um, verse 7 and coming in the light but he came in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and became obedient and it says to the point of I, I, that, that the point of is in italics it's not in, the, it's not in the original Greek he became obedient to death even the death of the cross which was the worst capital punishment that the Romans had been able to devise Therefore God also has exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So we are to treat, that if that mind which is in Jesus Christ is to be within us, we are to treat each other's with the loving disposition that Christ extends to us and the loving disposition he displayed to the people he walked amongst 2,000 years ago. You know, we're not to forcibly grasp equality or rights. He didn't do that. He emptied himself of privileges that were his and gave himself for us. Just turn briefly in conclusion to Galatians chapter 5. And uh, it's fascinating. If you look at Galatians chapter 5, you see that the, la- the latter part of the chapter, it talks about the spirit, the fruit of the spirit. Fruit singular of the spirit are, is composed of several parts. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. They are the, that, that is the fruit that we must be developing within us. And they're the only fruit that God's Holy Spirit will bring to us. If you look at them, they all harmonize together. They can exist together. And they should exist together in our life. A few verses previously, it talks about up in verse 16, the flesh. And in verse 19, it talks about not the fruit of the flesh, but the works 
of the flesh. You know, Satan inflicts upon mankind evil and hard labor. And they're evident adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbirths of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, and drunkenness, and revelries. People who are afflicted by these don't harmonize together and work together in peace and harmony. Satan's realm, even as it, as it exists on earth, is not peace and light among the demons. They are bitterly at each other's throats, figuratively speaking, the whole time. There is that bitter attitude there. They cannot coexist together, and we certainly cannot coexist with them. We must coexist with God's Spirit. In conclusion, you know, the world needs righteous and converted children of God to be given authority when Christ returns. That will happen. He is going to do that. The question is, will you and I be a part of it? Will we be part of that ruling family of God that he's going to usher in him? We have been called. I hope that we have proven ourselves to be not only chosen or called, but elect, chosen and faithful because we will be the ones Those will be the people who are glorified with Jesus Christ. You know, there is a wondrous, glorious future being offered to us, and it staggers the imagination. And God hasn't revealed a lot of it to us, but we have the opportunity to rule with Christ as kings and priests over the world and finally the universe. We have an opportunity to be part of the royal house of God, to live forever in intimate relationship with God and with the patriarchs and with the saints made perfect. And this future comes not to hearers of the law, not to those who've experienced longevity in the church, but but to those who are the doers of the law. We need to get to know the Bible, to educate ourselves in this book, which is the law book of God's kingdom, We need to strive to live a Christian life in every single aspect of our lives. We need to build that family relationship with God, with the Son, Jesus Christ, and also in the human flesh with each other. Very important. And we need to strive to develop God's holy, righteous character, governing and modifying all our behaviour.